3: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello, and welcome to Show 202. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Landing down with Show 202. We have the Geoffrey A. Landis story, part two in this serial. Give me a little heads up what's coming up in today's show then. We have Film Talk, Dennis Lane. Then, straight into that Sultans of the Cloud, part two by Geoffrey A. Landis. Then we have an interview with Andy Remick. Andy Remick is one of the kind of, well, I wouldn't say a hot new writer. He's been going for a long time now, but he's got some a new little project on the go. A writer, UK writer over here doing all sorts of good things has a fantastic project which i'm actually very interested in as well got an interview with andy on that then we have poetry planet by diane severson and there's all just to let you know there's all lots of links from diane's page or diane's little show there's lots of links there as well so please if you need anything from diane's segment the links are on the front of the website as is everything else <laughs> So let's get straight in. Dennis Sir, Film Talk. A review from the Jacaranda
4: City. Welcome to another movie review, recorded, as usual, in a wardrobe somewhere in Pretoria. I just can't seem to stop myself. Here's another movie about the end of the world. Today I'm going to talk about 1951's When Worlds Collide, produced by George Powell before he ever put on his director's hat, and directed by Rudolph Matte. It was adapted from the nineteen thirty-three novel of the same name, co-written by Philip Wiley and Edwin Balmer. The movie was a follow-up to Powell's Destination Moon. His three movies of the early fifties all won the Oscar for special effects. Destination Moon in 1950, When Worlds Collide in 1951, and The War of the Worlds in 1953. In When Worlds Collide, Powell got the financial balance just right as the producer. Although the special effects for the film must have cost a lot, the overall budget came in at under a million dollars, thanks to a relatively unknown cast and a good use of stock footage. If you sat down to watch this after the titles, you could be forgiven in thinking that you had walked into a 1950s sand and sandal epic. The opening shot is the cover of the Holy Bible, Followed by a quotation from Genesis 6.12. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. It is typical of Powell to draw heavy parallels between the Bible and his movies. Here we have a retelling of the story of Noah. I'm going to outline the plot in some detail. As I go, see if you can identify some of the ideas that have been plundered over the years by other filmmakers. Those of you who keep an eye on news of near-Earth objects will know that there is a small but measurable chance of the Earth being hit by an asteroid or a comet. And I wonder if minor planet 2004 MN was renamed Apophis due to the intervention of some Stargate SG-1 fans. Various surveys watch the sky under the umbrella term Space Guard. In When Worlds Collide, we have the far less likely event of a roving star, Belus, and its attendant planet, Zyra, hurtling towards the Earth. After the opening scene of the Mount Kenner Observatory in South Africa, where we learn that Bellus and Zyra have come closer to the Earth by almost a million miles in two weeks, Dave Randall, played by Richard Durr, flies in to pick up the data to take it to the US. He first appears, snogging, in the cockpit, rather like James Bond is wont to do. Randall reaches the US with his black box where the data is checked by Dr Cole Hedron and his scientists. Dr Hedron states that the bodies are about 3 billion miles away. Randall laughs and says, start worrying in a 100 years. Dr Hedron condescendingly replies that it will take about one year. If one thinks back to South Africa and the million miles in two weeks, That would put the collision about 115 years away. So, who's the scientist, and who's the womanising pilot again? The next scene is iconic. In a club that night, Randall lights his cigarette with money lit from the flame of the food warmer on the next table, the impression being that it's a high-denomination note. He does the same for Hedron's daughter, Joyce, who has just been proposed to by Dr Tony Drake. Randall laughs and says that he has money to burn. By Joyce's interactions, it's clear that she is far more interested in Randall than Drake. At the UN, the conclusions of Dr. Hedron are rejected by rival scientists, but a couple of rich old friends back him to start building a modern-day Noah's Ark to fly a few people and animals to the planet Zyra as it passes by. As the work starts, a wheelchair-bound tycoon Sidney Stanton arrives, played by John Hoyt, and sounding, appropriately enough, like Mr Burns from The Simpsons. He will fund the rest of the ship, if he can go along too. The next section of the movie is taken up with scenes of construction, books are scanned onto microfiche. Remember microfiche? Slide rules are consulted, animals are collected and caged nearby. And, at this point, Randall decides not to go on the mission, thinking that he has nothing to offer. But he's tricked into believing that he has to be backup for the pilot by Tony Drake, who's the team doctor. Drake does this, even though he also loves Joyce and is tempted to leave Randall behind. When Zyra passes by, there are earthquakes, volcanoes, widespread destruction and fires, followed by tidal waves. The effects may seem simple now, but they were impressive. When they first appeared on the screen, and they certainly don't look that bad, even now. In the last quarter of the movie, the day to leave draws closer, and the list of the 38 lucky workers out of a workforce of 600 is posted. There's already a nepotistic list of six that includes Randall, Joyce and Cole Hedron, Tony Drake, Sidney Stanton, plus the pilot, Dr. Fry. Stanton's aide draws a gun and insists on being given a berth but Stanton shoots him and tells Dr Hedron to get out the guns from his quarters as the lucky lottery winners are loading the ship the men left behind break out the guns and rush out to force their way on board dr hedron raises the gangplank leaving himself and stanton behind on the ground they're too old he says and the extra fuel will give the others a better chance with shots ringing against the metal hull The ship shoots along the rail and then curves up the hill to take off. This mode of take-off was used in order to conserve fuel. Once in space, we see the sun, Belus, consume the earth and, in a surprisingly short time, they reach Zyra and the fuel runs short. However, Randall manages to glide between two mountains and skid to safety in the snow. The hatch is opened and everyone looks out onto the invitingly beautiful landscape that is surprisingly close to the snowy mountain. The scenery is so lush and green, one could just shake some vinaigrette on it right there and have at it. Also, is it just me, or are the silhouettes of two of the distant hills actually pyramids? It is said that, in the mid-1950s, George Powell considered the idea of producing a sequel to When Worlds Collide, based on Wiley and Balmer's sequel, After Worlds Collide so the pyramid silhouettes could have been there to pique our interest. However, when Conquest of Space failed at the box office, Powell's career freewheeled for a while, and the moment was lost. Looking back from our vantage point, the story is a straightforward one. However, that didn't stop the makers of 2012 stealing liberally from it. What makes it stand out for me is the way that it matter-of-factly addresses such issues as scientific jealousy, multinational inertia, and the tendency for the ultra-rich to try and buy their way out of trouble. The DVD that I own contains zero extras. However, it was part of a box set of old Paramount movies, and well worth the few pounds it cost. It is a short movie, just 83 minutes, but is definitely worth a look, as it's a seminal movie of the genre. Anyway, I have to go now. It's a clear night, and I think that I should dust down my old telescope. And watch the skies. Bye.
3: Hi, thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much. And Dennis is in volume three of Starship our Stories. We're all geared up there now. D is busy as a bee. He got so much on trying to sort this out. The emails are coming back to me in the dozens now. <laughs> So, we have part two of The Sultans of the Clouds. This is one of those Hugo-nominated stories from this year by Jeffrey A. Landis. We played part one last week, and you know, obviously we're going to play part three next week. It is narrated by Jonathan Dans. Jonathan's done nice work for Star... That, nice work, that sounds a bit... done amazing work for Starship Sova, and he will do some more in the future. So, Starship Sova is very proud to present...
5: In Part 1 of The Sultan of the Clouds by Jeffrey A. Landis, Dr. Leah Hamakawa of the Pleiades Institute and her assistant, David Tinkerman, are invited to visit Hypatia, the pearl of the floating cities of Venus. The invitation is etched on a card of pure diamond and explains that Dr. Hamakawa's extensive knowledge of the ecology of Mars has attracted the satrap of Venus's interest. When they arrive on Venus, they are greeted by a boy on the cusp of puberty. Carlos Fernando de la Croix Ortega de la Hoya y Nordwald Gruenbaum, the satrap of Venus himself, the Sultan of the Clouds. After the Sultan presents Dr. Hamakawa with a gift, a rare book, he whisks her away. The Sultan's guards show Tinkerman his accommodations, the household of Truman Singh. The next day, Tinkerman sets out to find Dr. Hamakawa, but only succeeds in exploring Hypatia, and returns to the Singh household, to find a dinner invitation from the sultan awaiting him. Dressing in colorful Hypatia fashion woven from spider silk, Tinkerman attends the dinner where he is finally able to talk with Dr. Hamakawa. Their conversation is brief as Tinkerman is seated at the far end of the diamond table from where Nordwald Gruenbaum, an older woman Tinkerman takes to be the sultan's mother, and Dr. Hamakawa are sitting. In front of thirty or so dinner guests, the sultan presents Dr. Hamakawa with the gift of an egg made from colorful, Braided Diamond Fibers The Sultan of the Clouds by Jeffrey A. Landis Part 2 Later, when I was back with the Singh family, I was still puzzled. There had been some secret significance there that everybody else had seen, but I had missed. Mr. Singh was sitting with his older wife, Triolet, talking about accounts. "'I must ask a question,' I said. Truman Singh turned to me. "'Ask,' he said, and I shall answer.' Is there any particular significance, I said, to an egg? An egg? Singh seemed puzzled. Much significance, I would say. In the old days, the days of the asteroid miners, an egg was a symbol of luxury. Ducks were brought into the bigger habitats, and their eggs were, for some miners, the only food they would ever eat that was not a form of algae or soybean. A symbol of luxury, I said. I see, but I still don't understand it. I thought for a moment, and then asked, "'Is there any significance to a gift of an egg?' "'Well, no,' he said slowly. "'Not exactly. An egg? Nothing in and of itself.' His wife, Triolet, asked, "'You are sure it's just an egg? Nothing else?' "'A very elaborate egg.' "Hm," she said with a speculative look in her eye. "'Not maybe an egg, a book and a rock? "'That startled me a little.' A book and a rock? The Bruno book, the very first thing Carlos Fernando had done on meeting Leah was to give her a book, but a rock? I hadn't seen anything like that. Why that? Ah, she said, I suppose you wouldn't know. I don't believe that our customs here in the Sky Cities are well known out there in the Outer Reaches. Her mention of the Outer Reaches, Saturn and beyond, confused me for a moment, until I realized that, viewed from Venus Perhaps even Earth and the built worlds of the orbital clouds could be considered outer. Here, she continued, as in most of the ten thousand cities, an egg, a book, and a rock is a special gift. The egg is symbolic of life, you see. A book, symbolic of knowledge, and a rock is the basis of all wealth, the minerals from the asteroid belt that built our society and bought our freedom. Yes, and all three together. They are the traditional gesture Of the beginning of courtship, she said. I still don't understand. If a young man gives a woman an egg, a book, and a rock, Truman said, I should say this is his official sign that he is interested in courting her. If she accepts them, then she accepts his courtship. What? That's it? Just like that? They're married? No, 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 he said. It only means that she accepts the courtship, that she takes him seriously, and when it comes, she will listen to his proposal." Often, a woman may have rocks and eggs from many young men. She doesn't have to accept, only take him seriously. Oh, I said. But it still made no sense. How old was Carlos Fernando? Twenty Venus years? What was that, twelve Earth years or so? He was far too young to be proposing. No one can terraform Venus, Carlos Fernando said. Carlos Fernando had been uninterested in having me join in Leah's discussion, but Leah oblivious to her host's displeasure, or perhaps simply not caring, had insisted that if he wanted to talk about terraforming, I should be there. It was one room of Carlos Fernando's extensive palaces, a rounded room, an enormous cavernous space that had numerous alcoves. I'd found them sitting in one of the alcoves, an indentation that was cozy, but still open. The ubiquitous female guards were still there, but they were at the distant ends of the room, within command if Carlos Fernando chose to shout, but far enough to give them the illusion of privacy. The furniture they were sitting on was odd. The chairs seemed sculpted of sapphire smoke, yet were solid to the touch. I picked one up and discovered that it weighed almost nothing at all. Diamond arrow gel, Carlos Fernando said. Do you like it? It's amazing, I said. I had never before seen so much made out of diamond, With carbon dioxide, an inexhaustible resource surrounding the floating cities, it was logical that the floating cities would make as much as they could out of carbon. But still, I didn't know you could make an aerogel of diamond. How do you make it? A new process we've developed, Carlos Fernando said. You don't mind if I don't go into the details. It's actually an adaptation of an old idea, something that was invented back on Earth decades ago, called a molecular still. When Carlos Fernando mentioned the molecular still... I thought I saw a sharp flicker of attention from Leah. This was a subject she knew something about, I thought. But instead of following up, she went back to his earlier comment on terraforming. You keep asking questions about the ecology of Mars, she said. Why so many detailed questions about Martian ecopoiesis? You say you're not interested in terraforming, but are you really? You aren't thinking of the old idea of using photosynthetic algae in the atmosphere to reduce the carbon dioxide, are you? Surely you know that that can't work. Of course, Carlos Fernando waved the question away. Theoretical, he said. Nobody could terraform Venus. I know, I know. His pronouncement would have been more dignified if his voice had finished changing, but as it was, it wavered between squeaking an octave up, then going back down again, ruining the effect. We simply have too much atmosphere, he said. Down at the surface, the pressure is over 90 bars. Even if the carbon dioxide of the atmosphere could be converted to oxygen, the surface atmosphere would still be 70 times higher than the Earth's atmospheric pressure. I realize that, Leah said. We're not actually ignorant, you know. So high a pressure of oxygen would be deadly. He'd burst into flames. And the leftover carbon, he said, smiling. Hundreds of tons per square meter. So what are you thinking, she asked. But in response he only smiled. Okay, I can't terraform Venus, he said. So tell me more about Mars. I could see that there was something that he was keeping back. Carlos Fernando had some idea that he wasn't telling. But Leah did not press him, and instead took the invitation to tell him about her studies of the ecology on Mars, as it had been transformed long ago by the vanished engineers of the long-gone freehold Toynbee colony. The Toynbee's engineers had designed life to thicken the atmosphere of Mars, to increase the greenhouse effect, to melt the frozen oceans of Mars. But it's not working, Leah concluded. The anaerobic life is being outcompeted by the photosynthetic oxygen producers, It's pulling too much carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But what about the Gaia effect? Doesn't it compensate? No, Leah said. I found no trace of a Lovelock self-aware planet. Either that's a myth, or else the ecology on Mars is just too young to stabilize. Of course, on Venus, we would have no problem with photosynthesis removing carbon dioxide. I thought you weren't interested in terraforming Venus, I said. Carlos Fernando waved my objection away. A hypothetical case, of course, he said. A thought exercise. He turned to Leah. Tomorrow, he said, would you like to go kayaking? Sure, she said. Kayaking on Venus did not involve water. Carlos Fernando instructed Leah, and Epiphany helped me. The kayak was a ten-meter-long gas envelope, a transparent cylinder of plastic curved into an ogive at both ends, with a tiny bubble at the bottom where the kayaker sat. One end of the kayak held a huge, gossamer-bladed propeller that turned lazily as the kayaker pedaled, while the kayaker rode with flimsy wings, transparent and iridescent, like the wings of a dragonfly. The wings, I discovered, had complicated linkages. Each one could be pulled, twisted, and lifted, allowing each wing to separately beat, rotate, and camber. Keep up a steady motion with the propeller, Epiphany told me. You'll lose all your maneuverability if you let yourself float to a stop. You can scull with the wings to put on a burst of speed if you need to. Once you're comfortable, use the wings to rise up or swoop down and to maneuver. You'll have fun. We were in a launching bay, a balcony protruding from the side of the city. Keep up a steady motion with the propeller, Epiphany told me. You'll lose all your maneuverability if you let yourself float to a stop. You can scull with the wings to put on a burst of speed if you need to. Once you're comfortable, use the wings to rise up or swoop down and to maneuver. You'll have fun. We were launching in a bay, a balcony protruding from the side of the city. Four of the human-powered dirigibles that they had called kayaks were docked against the blister, the bulge of the cockpits neatly inserted into docking rings so that the pilots could enter the dirigible without exposure to the outside atmosphere. Looking out across the cloudscape, I could see dozens of kayaks dancing around the city like transparent squid with stubby wings, playing tag with each other and racing across the sky— So small and transparent compared to the magnificent clouds, they had been invisible until I'd known how to look. What about the altitude? I asked. You're about neutrally buoyant, she said. As long as you have airspeed, you can use the wings to make fine adjustments, up or down. What happens if I get too low? You can't get too low. The envelope has a reservoir of methanol. As you get lower, the temperature rises and your reservoir releases vapor, so the envelope inflates. If you gain too much altitude, vapor condenses out. So you'll find you're regulated to stay pretty close to the altitude you're set for, which right now is, she checked a meter, 52 kilometers above local ground level. We're blowing west at 100 meters per second, so local ground level will change as the terrain below varies. Check your meters for altimetry. Looking downward, nothing was visible at all. Only clouds, and below the clouds, an infinity of haze. It felt odd to think of the surface, over fifty kilometers straight down, and even odder to think that the city we were inside was speeding across that invisible landscape at hundreds of kilometers an hour. There was only the laziest feeling of motion as the city drifted slowly through the ever-changing canyons of clouds. "'Watch out for wind shear,' she said. "'It can take you out of sight of the city pretty quickly if you let it. Ride the conveyor back if you get tired.' "'The conveyor?' "'Horizontal axis vortices.' They roll from west to east and east to west. Choose the right altitude, and they'll take you wherever you want to go. Now that she'd told me, I could see the kayakers surfing the wind shear, rising upward and skimming across the sky on invisible wheels of air. Have fun, she said. She helped me into the gondola, tightened my straps, looked at the gas pressure meter, checked the purge valve on the emergency oxygen supply, and verified that the radio, backup radio, and emergency locator beacons worked. Across the kayak launch bay, Lea and Carlos Fernando had already pushed off. Carlos was sculling his wings alternatingly with a practiced swishing motion, building up a pendulum-like oscillation from side to side. Even as I watched, his little craft rolled over until for a moment it hesitated, inverted, and then rolled completely around. "'Showing off,' Epiphany said disdainfully. "'You're not supposed to do that. Not that anyone would dare correct him.' She turned back to me. "'Ready?' she asked. Ready as I'm going to be, I said. I'd been given a complete safety briefing that explained the backup systems and the backups to the backups, but still, floating in the sky above a 52-kilometer drop into the landscape of hell seemed an odd diversion. Go, she said. She checked the seal on the cockpit, and then with one hand she released the docking clamp. Freed from its mooring, the kayak sprang upward into the sky. As I'd been instructed, I banked the kayak away from the city. The roll made me feel suddenly giddy. The kayak skittered, sliding around until it was moving sideways to the air, the nose dipping down so that I was hanging against my straps. Coordinate the turn, I thought, but every slight motion I made with the wings seemed amplified drunkenly and the kayak wove around erratically. The radio blinked at me and Epiphany's voice said, You're doing great. Give it some airspeed. I wasn't doing great. I was staring straight down at lemon-tinted haze and spinning slowly around like a falling leaf airspeed, I realized that I had entirely forgotten to pedal. I pedaled now, and the nose lifted. The sideways spin damped out, and as I straightened out, the wings bit into the air. Great, Epiphany's voice told me. Keep it steady. The gas envelope seemed too fragile to hold me, but I was flying now, suspended below a golden sky. It was far too complicated, but I realized that as long as I kept the nose level, I could keep it under control. I was still oscillating slightly. It was difficult to avoid overcontrolling, But on the average, I was keeping the nose pointed where I aimed it. Where were Leah and Carlos Fernando? I looked around. Each of the kayaks had different markings. Mine was marked with gray stripes like a tabby cat, and I tried to spot theirs. A gaggle of kayaks was flying together, rounding the pylon of the city. As they moved around the pylon, they all turned at once, flashing in the sunlight like a school of fish suddenly startled. Suddenly I spotted them, not far above me, "'close to the looming wall of the city, "'the royal purple envelope of Carlos Fernando's kayak "'and the blue and yellow stripes of Leah's. "'Leah was circling in a steady climb, "'and Carlos Fernando was darting around her now, "'coming in fast and bumping envelopes, "'now darting away and pulling up, "'hovering for a moment with his nose pointed at the sky, "'then skewing around and sliding back downward. "'Their motions looked like the courtship dance of birds. "'The purple kayak banked around "'and swooped out and away from the city.' and an instant later, Leah's blue and yellow kayak banked and followed. They both soared upward, catching a current of air invisible to me. I could see a few of the other flyers surfing on the same updraft. I yawed my nose around to follow them, but made no progress. I was too inexperienced with the kayak to be able to guess the air currents, and the wind differential was blowing me around the city in exactly the opposite of the direction I wanted to go. I pulled out and away from the city, seeking a different wind, and for an instant I caught a glimpse of something in the clouds below me, dark and fast-moving. Then I caught the updraft. I could feel it. The wings caught the air, and it felt like an invisible giant's hand picking me up and carrying me. Then there was a sudden noise, a stuttering and ripping, followed by a sound like a snare drum. My left wing and propeller ripped away, the fragments spraying into the sky. My little craft banked hard to the left. My radio came to life but I couldn't hear anything as the cabin disintegrated around me. I was falling. Falling. For a moment, I felt like I was back in zero-G. I clutched uselessly to the remains of the control surfaces, connected by loose cords to fluttering pieces of debris. Pieces of my canopy floated away and were caught by the wind and spun upward and out of sight. The atmosphere rushed in and my eyes started to burn. I made the mistake of taking a breath and the effect was like getting kicked in the head. "'Flickering purple dots the colors of a bruise "'closed in from all directions. "'My vision narrowed to a single bright tunnel. "'The air was liquid fire in my lungs. "'I reached out desperately, "'trying to remember the emergency instructions "'before I blacked out, "'and my hands found the emergency air mask "'between my legs. "'I was still strapped into my seat, "'although the seat was no longer attached to a vehicle, "'and I slapped the breathing mask against my face "'and sucked hard to start the airflow "'from the emergency oxygen. "'I was lucky.' The oxygen cylinder was still attached to the bottom of the seat as the seat with me in it tumbled through the sky. Through blurred eyes I could see the city spinning above me. I tried to think of what the emergency procedure could be and what I should do next, but I could only think of what had gone wrong. What had I done? For the life of me, I couldn't think of anything that I could have done that would have ripped the craft apart. The city dwindled to the size of an acorn, and then I fell into the cloud layer, and everything disappeared into a pearly white haze. My skin began to itch all over. I squeezed my eyes shut against the acid fog. The temperature was rising. How long would it take to fall 50 kilometers to the surface? Something enormous and metallic swooped down from above me, and I blacked out. Minutes or hours or days later, I awoke in a dimly lit cubicle. I was lying on the ground, and two men wearing masks were spraying me with jets of foaming white liquid that looked like milk but tasted bitter. My flight suit was in shreds around me. I sat up, and began to cough uncontrollably. My arms and my face itched like blazes, but when I started to scratch, one of the men reached out and slapped my hands away. Don't scratch! I turned to look at him, and the one behind me grabbed me by the hair and smeared a handful of goo into my face, rubbing it hard into my eyes. Then he picked up a patch of cloth and tossed it to me. Rub this where it itches. It should help. I was still blinking, my face dripping, my vision fuzzy. The patch of cloth was wet with some gelatinous slime, I grabbed it from him and dabbed it on my arms and then rubbed it in. It did help, some. Thanks, I said. What the hell? The two men in face masks looked at each other. Acid burn, the taller man said. You're not too bad. A minute or two of exposure won't leave scars. What? Acid. You were exposed to the clouds. Right. Now that I wasn't quite so distracted, I looked around. I was in the cargo hold of some sort of aircraft. There were two small round portholes on either side. Although nothing was visible through them but a blank white, I could feel that the vehicle was in motion. I looked at the two men. They were both rough characters. Unlike the brightly colored spider silk gowns of the citizens of Hypatia, they were dressed in clothes that were functional, but not fancy, jumpsuits of a dark gray color with no visible insignia. Both of them were fit and well-muscled, I couldn't see their faces, since they were wearing breathing masks and lightweight helmets, but under their masks I could see that they both wore short beards, in other fashion that had been missing among the citizens of Hypatia. Their eyes were covered with amber-tinted goggles, made in a crazy style that cupped each eye with a piece that was rounded like half an eggshell, apparently stuck to their faces by some invisible glue. It gave them a strange, bug-eyed look. They looked at me, but behind their face masks and Google eyes, I was completely unable to read their expression. "'Thanks,' I said. "'So who are you, some sort of emergency rescue force?' "'I think you know who we are,' the taller one said. "'The question is, who the hell are you?' I stood up and reached out a hand, thinking to introduce myself, but both of the men took a step back. Without seeming to move his hand, the taller one now had a gun, a tiny omniblaster of some kind. Suddenly, a lot of things were clear. "'You're pirates,' I said. "'We're the Venus Underground,' he said. "'We don't like the word pirates very much.' Now, if you don't mind, I have a question, and I really would like an answer. Who the hell are you? So I told him. The first man started to take off his helmet, but the taller pirate stopped him. We'll keep the mask on for now until we decide he's safe. The taller pirate said he was named Esteban Jaramillo, the shorter one Esteban Francisco. That was too many Estebans, I thought, and decided to tag the one Jaramillo and the other Francisco. I discovered from them that not everybody in the floating cities thought of Venus as a paradise. Some of the independent cities considered the clan of Nordwald-Gruenbaum to be well on its way to becoming a dictatorship. They own half of Venus outright, but that's not good enough for them, no, oh no, Jaramillo told me. They're stinking rich, but not stinking rich enough, and the very idea that there are free cities floating in the sky, cities that don't swear fealty to them and pay their goddamn taxes, that pisses them off. They'll do anything that they can to crush us. Us? We're just fighting back. I would have been more inclined to see his point if I didn't have the uncomfortable feeling that I would just been abducted. It had been a tremendous stroke of luck for me that their ship had been there to catch me when my kayak broke apart and fell. I didn't much believe in luck, and they didn't bother to answer when I asked about being returned to Hypatia. It was pretty clear that the direction we were headed was not back toward the city. I had given them my word that I wouldn't fight or try to escape. <laughs> Where would I escape to? And they accepted it. Once they realized that I wasn't who they had expected to capture, they pressed me for news of the outside. We don't hear a lot of outside news. There were three of them in the small craft the two Estebans and the pilot, who was never introduced. He did not bother to turn around to greet me, and all I ever saw of him was the back of his helmet. The craft itself they called a Manta, an odd thing that was partly an airplane, partly dirigible, and partly a submarine. Once I'd given my word that I wouldn't escape, I was allowed to look out there was nothing to see but a luminous golden haze. We keep the Manta flying under the cloud decks, Jaramillo said. Keeps us invisible. Invisible from whom, I asked, but neither one of them bothered to answer. It was a dumb question anyway. I could very well guess who they wanted to keep out of sight of. What about a radar, I said. Esteban looked at Esteban and then at me. We have a means to deal with the radar, he said. Just leave it at that and stop it with the questions you should know enough not to ask. They seemed to be going somewhere, and eventually, the manta exited the cloud bank into the clear air above. I pressed toward the porthole, trying to see out. The cloudscapes of Venus were still fascinating to me. We were skimming the surface of the cloud deck, ready to duck under if there were any sign of watchers, I surmised. From the cloudscape, it was impossible to tell how far we'd come, whether it was just a few leagues or halfway around the planet. None of the floating cities were visible, but in the distance I spotted the fat torpedo shape of a dirigible. The pilot saw it as well, for we banked toward it and sailed slowly up, slowing down as we approached until it disappeared over our heads. And then the hull resonated with a sudden impact, and then a ratcheting clang. Soft, dock, Jaramillo commented, and then a moment later another clang. The nose of the craft was suddenly jerked up. Hard, dock, he said. The two Estebans seemed to relax a little, and a whine and a rumble filled the little cabin. We were being winched up into the dirigible. After ten minutes or so, we came to rest in a vast interior space. The manta had been taken inside the envelope of the gas chamber, I realized. Half a dozen people met us. "'Sorry,' Jaramillo said, "'but I'm afraid we're going to have to blind you. Nothing personal.' "'Blind?' I said. "'But actually, that was good news. If they'd had no intention to release me, they wouldn't care what I saw.' Jaramillo held my head steady while Francisco placed a set of the goggled-eyed glasses over my eyes. They were surprisingly comfortable.' Whatever held them in place, they were so light that I could scarcely feel that they were there. The amber tint was barely noticeable. After checking that they fit, Francisco tapped the side of his goggles with his fingertip. Once, twice, three times, four times. Each time he touched the goggles, the world grew darker, and with a fifth tap, all I could see was inky black. Why would sunglasses have a setting for complete darkness, I thought. And then I answered my own question. The last setting must be for E-beam welding. Pretty convenient, I thought. I wondered if I dared to ask them if I could keep the set of goggles when they were done. I am sure you won't be so foolish as to adjust the transparency, one of the Estebans said. I was guided out of the mantis hatch and across the hangar and then to a seat. This is the prisoner? a voice asked. Yeah, Jaramillo said. But the wrong one. No way to tell, but we guessed wrong. Got the wrong flyer. Shit. So who is he? Technician, Jaramillo said. From the up and out. Really? So does he know anything about the nordwall Grunbaum plan? I spread my hands out flat, trying to look harmless. Look, I only met the kid twice, I, or I guess three times, If you... That caused some consternation. I could hear sudden buzz of voices in a language I didn't recognize. I wasn't sure how many of them there were, but it seemed like at least half a dozen. I desperately wished I could see them, but that would very likely be a fatal move. After a moment, Jaramillo said, his voice now flat and expressionless, You know the heir of Nordwald Gruenbaum? You met Carlos Fernando in person? I met him. I don't know him. Not really. Who did you say you were again? I went through my story, this time starting at the very beginning, explaining how we had been studying the ecology of Mars, how we had been summoned to Venus to meet the mysterious Carlos Fernando. From time to time, I was interrupted to answer questions. What was my relationship with Leah Hamakawa? I wished I knew. Were we married? Engaged? No. No. What was Carlos Fernando's relationship with Dr. Hamakawa? I wished I knew. Had Carlos Fernando ever mentioned his feelings about the independent cities? No. His plans? No. Why was Carlos Fernando interested in terraforming? I don't know. What was Carlos Fernando planning? I don't know. Why did Carlos Fernando bring Hamakawa to Venus? I wished I knew. What was he planning? I don't know. I don't know. The more I talked, the more sketchy it seemed, even to me. There was silence when I had finished talking. Then the first voice said, Take him back to the Manta. I was led back inside and put into a tiny space, and a door clanged shut behind me. After a while, when nobody answered my call, I reached up to the goggles. They popped free with no more than a light touch, and looking at them, I was still unable to see how they attached. I was in a storage hold of some sort. The door was locked. I contemplated my situation, but I couldn't see that I knew any more now than I had before, except that I now knew that not all of the Venus cities were content with the status quo, and some of them were willing to go to some lengths to change it. They had deliberately shot me down, apparently thinking that I was Leah, or possibly even hoping for Carlos Fernando. It was hard to think that he would have been out of the protection of his bodyguards, Most likely, I decided, the bodyguards had been there, never letting him out of sight, ready to swoop in if needed, but while Carlos Fernando and Leah had soared up and around the city, I had left the sphere covered by the guards, and that was the opportunity the pirates in the Manta had taken. They had seen the air kayak flying alone, and shot it out of the sky, betting my life on their skill that they could swoop in and snatch the falling pilot out of midair. They could have killed me, I realized and all because they thought I knew something, or rather that Leah Hamakawa knew something about Carlos Fernando's mysterious plan. What plan? He was a 12-year-old kid, not even a teenager, barely more than an overgrown child. What kind of plan could a kid have? I examined the chamber I was in, this time looking more seriously at how it was constructed. All the joints were welded with no obvious gaps, but the metal was light, probably an aluminum-lithium alloy possibly malleable, if I had the time, if I could find a place to pry at, if I could find something to pry with. If I did manage to escape, would I be able to pilot the Manta out of its hangar in the dirigible? Maybe. I had no experience with lighter-than-air vehicles, though, and it would be a bad time to learn, especially if they decided that they wanted to shoot at me. And then I would be... where? A thousand miles from anywhere. Fifty million miles from anywhere I knew. I was still mulling this over when Esteban and Esteban returned. Strap in, Esteban Jaramillo told me. Looks like we're taking you home. The trip back was more complicated than the trip out. It involved two or more transfers from vehicle to vehicle, during some of which I was again requested to wear the opaque goggles. We were alone in the embarking station of some sort of public transportation. For a moment, the two Estebans had allowed me to leave the goggles transparent. Wherever we were, it was unadorned, drab compared to the florid excess of Hypatia where even the bus stations—did they have bus stations?—would have been covered with flourishes and artwork. Hatamio turned to me and for the first time pulled off his goggles so he could look me directly in the eye. His eyes were dark, almost black, and very serious. "'Look,' he said, "'I know you don't have any reason to like us. We've got our reasons. You have to believe that. We're desperate. We know that his father had some secret projects going. We don't know what they were, but we know he didn't have any use for the Free Cities.' "'We think the young Gruenbaum has something planned. "'If you can get through to Carlos Fernando, we want to talk to him.' "'If you get him,' Esteban Francisco said, "'push him out a window. We'll catch him. Easy.' He was grinning with a broad smile, showing all his teeth, as if to say he wasn't serious, but I wasn't at all sure. He was joking. "'We don't want to kill him. We just want to talk,' Esteban Jaramillo said. "'Call us, please. Call us.' And with that, he reached up and put his goggles back on. Then Francisco reached over and tapped my goggles into Opacity.' and everything was dark, and with one on either side of me, we boarded the transport. Bus? Zeppelin? Rocket? Finally I was led into a chamber, and was told to wait for two full minutes before removing the goggles, and after that I was free to do as I liked. It was only after the footsteps had disappeared that it occurred to me to wonder how I was supposed to contact them, if I did have a reason to. It was too late to ask, though. I was alone, or seemed to be alone. Was I being watched to see if I would follow orders, I wondered? Two full minutes. I counted, trying not to rush the count. When I got to 120, I took a deep breath and finger-tapped the goggles to transparency. When my eyes focused, I saw I was in a large disembarking lounge with genetically engineered pink grass and sculptures of iron and of jade. I recognized it. It was the very same lounge at which we had arrived at Venus three days ago. Was it only three, or had another day gone by? I was back in Hypatia City. Once again I was surrounded and questioned. As with the rest of Carlos Fernando's domain, the questioning room was lushly decorated with silk-covered chairs and elegant teak carvings, but it was clearly a holding chamber. The questioning was by four women, Carlos Fernando's guards, and I had the feeling that they would not hesitate to tear me apart if they thought I was being less than candid with them. I told them what had happened, and at every step they asked questions making suggestions as to what I could have done differently. Why had I taken my kayak so far away from any of the other flyers and out away from the city? Why had I allowed myself to be captured without fighting? Why didn't I demand to be returned and refuse to answer any questions? Why could I describe none of the rebels I'd met except for the two men who had, as far as they could tell from my descriptions, no distinctive features? At the end of their questioning, when I asked to see Carlos Fernando, they told me that this would not be possible. "'You think I allowed myself to be shot down deliberately?' I said, "'addressing myself to the chief among the guards, a lean woman in a scarlet silk. "'We don't know what to think, Mr. Tinkerman,' she said. "'We don't like to take chances.' "'What now, then?' "'We can arrange transport to the built world,' she said, "'or even to the earth.' "'I don't plan to leave without Dr. Hamakawa,' I said. She shrugged. "'At the moment that's still your option, yes,' she said. "'At the moment.' How can I get in contact with Dr. Hamakawa? She shrugged. If Dr. Hamakawa wishes, I'm sure she will be able to contact you. And if I want to speak to her? She shrugged. You're free to go now. If we need to talk to you, we can find you. I had been wearing one of the gray jumpsuits of the pirates when I'd been returned to Hypatia. The guard women had taken that away. Now they gave me a suit of spider silk in a lavender brighter than the garb an expensive courtesan would wear in the built world surrounding Earth more of an evening gown than a suit. It was nevertheless subdued compared to the day-to-day attire of Hypatia's citizens, and I attracted no attention. I discovered that the google eyed sunglasses had been neatly placed in a pocket at the knees of the garment. Apparently people on Venus keep their sunglasses at their knees, convenient when you're sitting, I supposed. They hadn't been recognized as a parting gift from the pirates, or more likely had been considered so trivial as to not be worth confiscating. I was unreasonably pleased I like those glasses. I found the Singh habitat with no difficulty, and when I arrived, Epiphany and Truman Singh were there to welcome me and to give me the news. My kidnapping was already old news. More recent news was being discussed everywhere. Carlos Fernando Delacroix Ortega de la Hoya y Nordwald Gruenbaum had given a visitor from the outer solar system, Dr. Leah Hamakawa, a person who, they had heard, had actually been born on Earth, a rock, and she had not handed it back to him. My head was swimming. You're saying that Carlos Fernando is proposing marriage to Leah? That doesn't make any sense. He's a kid, for Jove's sake. He's not old enough. Truman and Epiphany Singh looked at one another and smiled. How old were you when we got married? Truman asked her. Twenty? I was almost twenty-one before you accepted my book and my rock, she said. So in earth years, what's that? He said. Thirteen? A little over twelve, she said. About time I was married up, I'd say. Wait, I said. You said you were twelve years old when you got married? Earth years, she said. Yes, that's about right. You married at twelve, and you had... I suddenly didn't want to ask, and said, Do all women on Venus marry so young? There are a lot of independent cities, Truman said. Some of them must have different customs, I suppose, but it's the custom more or less everywhere I know. But that's... I started to say, but couldn't think how to finish. "'Sick, perverted. "'But then there were once a lot of cultures on earth "'that had child marriages. "'We know the Outer Reaches have different customs,' Epiphany said. "'Other regions do things differently. "'The way we do it works for us. "'A man typically marries up at age twenty-one or so,' "'Truman explained. "'Say, twelve, thirteen years old in earth years? "'Maybe eleven. "'His wife will be about fifty, or sixty. "'She'll be his instructor, then, as he grows up. "'What's that in earth years?' Thirty? I know that in old earth custom both sides of a marriage are supposed to be the same age, but that's completely silly, is it not? Who's going to be the teacher, I should say? And then, when he grows up, by the time he reaches sixty or so, he'll marry down, find a girl who's about twenty or twenty-one, and he'll serve as a teacher to her, I should say, and in time she'll marry down when she's sixty, and so on. It seemed like a form of ritualized child abuse to me, but I thought it would be better not to say that aloud. Or, I thought, maybe I was reading too much into what he was saying. It was something like the medieval apprentice system. When he said teaching, maybe I was jumping to conclusions to think that he was talking about sex. Maybe they held off on sex until the child grew up some. I thought I might be happier not knowing. A marriage is like a braided rope, Epiphany said. Each element holds the next. I looked from Truman to Epiphany and back. You too? I asked Truman. You were married when you were twelve? In earth years, I was thirteen. When I married up Triolet, he said, Old. Best thing that ever happened to me. God, I needed someone like her to straighten me out back then. And I needed somebody to teach me about sex, I should say, although I didn't know it back then. And Triolet, oh yes, and her husband before her, and before that. Our marriage goes back a hundred and ninety years to when Raj Singh founded our family. We're a long braid, I should say. I could picture it now. Every male in the braid would have two wives, one twenty years older, one twenty years younger. And every female would have an older and younger husband. The whole assembly would indeed be something you could think of as a braid, alternating down generations. The interpersonal dynamics must be terribly complicated. And then I suddenly remembered why we were having this discussion. My God, I said, you're serious about this. So you're saying that Carlos Fernando isn't just playing a game, he actually plans to marry Leah. Of course, Epiphany said. It's a surprise, but then I'm not at all surprised. It's obviously what His Excellency was planning right from the beginning. He's a devious one, he is. He wants to have sex with her. She looked surprised. Well, yes, of course, wouldn't you? If you were twenty, I mean twelve years old, sure you're interested in sex, weren't you? It's about time His Excellency had a teacher. She paused a moment. I wonder if she's any good. Earth people she probably never had a good teacher of her own. That was a subject I didn't want to pick up on. Our little fling on Mars seemed a long way away, and my whole body ached just thinking of it. Sex. It's all that the young kids can think of, Truman cut in. Sure. But for all that, I should say that sex is the least important part of a braid. A braid is a business, Mr. Tinkerman. You should know that. His Excellency, Carlos Fernando, is required to marry up into a good braid. The tradition and the explicit terms of the inheritance are both very clear. There are only about five braids on Venus that meet the standards of the trust, and he's too closely related to half of them to be able to marry in. Everybody has been assuming he would marry the wife of the Telios Delacroix braid. She's old enough to marry down now, and she's not related to him closely enough to matter. His proposition to Dr. Hamakawa, yes, that has everybody talking. I was willing to grasp at any chance... You mean his marriage needs to be approved? He can't just marry anybody he likes? Truman Singh shook his head. Of course he can't. I just told you. This is a business as well as propagating the genes for the next thousand years. Most certainly he can't marry just anybody. But I think he just outmaneuvered them all, Epiphany added. They thought they had him boxed in, didn't they? But they never thought he'd go find an outworlder. They? I said, who's they? They never thought to guard against that, Epiphany continued. But he can not marry her, right? I said. For sure. She's not of the right family. She's not of any family. She's an orphan. She told me that. The Institute is her only family. Truman shook his head. I think Epiphany's right, he said. He just may have outfoxed them, I should say. If she's not of a family, doesn't have the dozens or hundreds of braided connections that everybody here must have, that means they can't find anything against her. Her scientific credentials... I bet they won't be able to find a flaw there, Epiphany said. And an orphan? That's brilliant. Just brilliant. No family ties at all. I bet he knew that. He worked hard to find just the right candidate, you can bet. She shook her head, smiling. And we all thought he'd be another layabout like his father. This is awful, I said. I've got to do something. You? You're far too old for Dr. Hamakawa. Epiphany looked at me appraisingly. A good-looking man, though. If I were ten, fifteen years younger, I'd give you another look. I have cousins with girls the right age. You're not married, you say?
3: There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Jeffrey A. Landis. Don't forget, next week is the final and concluding part of... The Sultan of the Clouds. So we have an interview with Andy Remick. Andy Remick is a UK author. I was going to say science fiction, but if you listen to the interview, Andy has dabbled, dipped his toes in a number of genres there. But he's got this new little venture, which I just think is a brilliant, very brave of him to take it on about ebooks. And he's got his own little ebook publishing company. So we have on the line, Andy Remick. Andy, nice of you to come on Starship Sofa. My pleasure. Now, listen, it's lovely to, to have you on there. And we've just like to say, we've had a chat before as well. You are, and you know, you kind of, I'm going to get into your kind of writing and what else you're kind of doing. But you do this in your day job as well. You're an English teacher trying to spread the word of the English language. What's, is it, is there too much for you? At Sometimes, you know, you're kind of, you're doing it at your day job, you know, English, English, and then you're coming home and, you, you know, you seem to be a prolific writer. Is there sometimes where you're just thinking... <laughs> I've I've had enough. (laughs) Well, I'm
0: a part-time English teacher at the moment. Um, I I qualified 15 years ago, and I spent a solid five years as a full-time teacher. And during that time, I used to write in my dinner breaks, and free periods, and then late in the evening as well. Um, But kind of publishing has been fortunate to me. It's been good to me for quite a while, and um, I did spend a period of about two years as a full-time writer, um, and then I kind of got bored, to be honest, just sat in the conservatory, just me and the dog, um, writing away. So I went back and did some part-time teaching and a bit of part-time lecturing as well at a couple of different universities. Um, and then I went full-time writing again. And once again, I got bored. So I've, I've gone back and doing a little bit of secondary teaching.
3: It, that's the first I've actually You know, it's it's normally quite, it's everybody's dream to to give up the kind of dear job slog. And you know, and have that lovely yeah. little you know yeah. sitting in the conservatory just writing for a living. Living, is that you know you've done that twice there now, so that's that's quite unusual. Think, I've heard it in, think, in a rider.
0: <laughs> I think I just started to get cabin fever, to be honest. And um, like you said, it, it is a dream. It was my dream for a very long time. And then you actually, <laughs> like many other things in life, I suppose, when you achieve that dream, it isn't quite what you expected. And I missed um I mean the thing I love about teaching is that the kids always always make you laugh you know there's and believe it or not there's you get a lot of um a lot of a lot of basics there a lot of a lot of things that can inspire you to write a lot of situations and and dialogue even with other teachers that you can soak up like a sponge and then reintegrate into your writing so it's it's
3: interesting. So have you got, you know, like you say, you're going back to these full-time, or not full-time, part-time jobs. Is there enough time for you to write? Because, like I said, we'll get into some other things that you've got, projects going on. You seem to be one busy guy. Uh, I'm very busy, actually, yeah. I think I've possibly
0: taken on too much at the moment. (laughs) Fantastic. um, Especially, it's the Anarchy Books thing that's that's really um, a big time sink for me, and I underestimated the amount of effort and time it would take to do that, but i'm I'm plowing ahead and it, it's good fun and I'm enjoying myself um in terms of writing i mean i do I, I i'm quite I'm quite good at slotting it into my free time and into being um quite having a good
3: structure to the day and you know and and meeting deadlines hopefully so before we get into kind of your anarchy book, said, tell everyone, you know, because a lot of my listeners are like over there on, in in the USA and all over the world, really. Who is Andy Remick? You know, is he a kind of what kind of genre does he fit himself <laughs> into, or where do you come well, from, so sir? I, mean, um, I come from originally from North Manchester in
0: the UK, and um, I currently live in Lincoln. I, I was writing from a very young age, from from primary school, really. So when I was seven, six, seven years old, I started writing small books and designing the covers. Um, it was just always really a passion because I, used, I was very into Enid Blyton and some of them, them early um, early kind of famous five and secret seven stories. Um, and then obviously I discovered Tolkien and Michael Moorcock and David Gemmell and Ian Banks and, and all those writers inspired me to to write more seriously. Um the kind of genres that I write in, I started the first, I originally started writing fantasy books, and, but my first uh, accepted novel was a novel called Spiral, which is a cross between, it's kind of a science fiction thriller, um, very fast paced. It's a bit like James Bond on acid.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot,
0: something like that. And um, that was accepted by Orbit and published in 2003. And it had two follow-ups, Quake and Warhead. Uh, then I moved to a different publisher who wanted a more um, far-future science fiction angle to the writing. So I, I then wrote War Machine and BioHell and Hardcore for Solaris Books. Um, Solaris Books then changed hands and I've, I've written... Um, a couple more books for them: Clone World and Theme Planet, which is due to come out next year. Uh, and then in the meantime, I also got contracts from a publisher called Angry Robot, who were originally part of HarperCollins Collins. And for them, I wrote um, a very dark, gritty, fast-paced fantasy series called the Gloc- Clockwork Vampire Trilogy, which began with Kell's Legend, Soul Stealers, and then Vampire Warlords, which is um, out now.
3: <laughs> Yeah, when you're, I'm on your website there now, and you have been, like, you know, a busy chap. And, you know, you've got, have you got, am I right in thinking now you've got Sim coming out? This is your new book. Yeah, that's a new science fiction book that I've put
0: out under Anarchy Books, which is kind of my part-time pet publishing project. Um, uh, I've also did a, um, a very nasty thriller, straight thriller Real world setting, uh, called Serial Killers Incorporated.
3: I've, got, I've is, um... got myself, I've got that on me Kindle there, sir. It's oh, just, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, right. when I see, yeah. when I've seen you kind of launch this, this Anarchy Books, you know what I mean? It's like, it's something that's really passionate for me, you know what I mean? Because I love the kind of the ebook now experience and I'm trying to kind mm, of yeah. do away with all me kind of paperback books, you know what I mean? It's just, that I've made a decision now just to go like on the ebook format. I got a Kindle, mm. and what a difference! Yeah. You know, you can you can get them straight away and get them anywhere. You know, and, <laughs> see, I was I was in Greece and I bought you know in my hotel lobby. I downloaded a book, and it's just ama- an amazing thing to do that. And you can read it anywhere, so it, it's exciting for me to to listen to you. You know about your anarchy books, so. In one way, why did you do it then? Because, like, see, so you've got—you seem to have so much on with your writing. You know, I don't know if you, are you still writing for two publishers? Uh, yeah, at the moment, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah. I, the
0: Anarchy Books thing came about because I'd written a novel called *Serial Killers Incorporated*, which was a straight thriller. And when when you get published in a genre, you tend to kind of get stuck in that genre. I mean, it was thanks to Mark Duskin and at Angry Robot that I could breach out into. Um, fantasy from the kind of science fiction thriller uh, genre that I was locked into at that time. Um, But still to to kind of actually get a thriller published, it's quite difficult because editors will say, um, well, especially marketing departments will say things like, yeah, but all your kind of fan base is science fiction and fantasy. So we don't really want to market you as a new author all over again in a different genre. So I had this book there. Um, My agent had tried a few different publishers with it and they weren't interested And I just thought, well, I'll sod it. I'll publish it myself. You know, I'll I'll see what. Just try it and see what happens. Because, like you say, it was an interesting, and exciting new, um, and like a new field of digital publishing. And I was thinking back to what happened with Napster and uh, kind of digital revolution in the music industry.
3: And I can kind of see similar things happening here now. So is. What 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 what's it like? And I don't want to kind of deep into personal kind of like how much you make and everything like that. But is it is there a kind of vein there where this is all right? This is doing okay for us, you know, on the back of like say your serial killer because you see you put it out on on in Amazon. How's sales yeah. been good for that? Yeah, he's doing okay.
0: Um, like I say, I mean, I'm selling to what isn't my readership, really, um, and I think more is. What I have to concentrate now on is kind of expanding Anarchy Books and getting it recognised by more people. Um, And I'm just looking at advertising and things like that at the moment because what started off as just me thinking, well, I want to put a a single book out on a digital format. Um, I didn't want to look like I was too Mickey Mouse or Small Fry. So I thought, well, I'll invent this, this publishing label called Anarchy Books and then it looks like I'm a little bit bigger than I am. But then I was talking to kind of some fellow authors at conventions and, um, and they were really, really interested in the project. And, like, for example, um, I've got a book called uh, *Rain Dogs* coming out by Gary McMahon, who's like an upcoming horror author. I'm um, publishing James Lovegrove and Eric Brown. I've uh, just commissioned a story from Guy N. Smith. All you right. Remember? God, please. Obviously, you know, he wrote is Crabs. Is, is he still going? Is he did not even read that? He is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, um, he writes for, um, like, a magazine. He's quite a regular um, magazine contributor, but yeah, he still he still writes, and he's still he's given me a really really interesting concept that he's going to develop
3: into a short story. Um, yeah, so so it's. It I, be- are you, This is what I'm kind of interested in as well, just from personal, you know, personal kind of reasons. Are you sinking like a lot of cash into this, or is it? You know, can you do everything from your home computer? Do you know? Are you kind of formatting your ebooks yourself, building up your website yourself, doing everything yourself, or is it now? A little, you see, a little kind of cottage industry almost. <laughs> I suppose it is a little cottage in industry, but um, I'm doing some of the things
0: myself. I mean, I'm not an expert on web design, and um, I've got a, a web designer called Del Lakin-Smith who's designed the site for Anarchy Books, mainly because of the e-commerce side. Um, I'm not really au fait with the mechanics of all that. Um, I've, and I've got professional artists doing covers for the books, uh, for the majority of the books anyway, um, I am formatting the own, the text myself at the moment. Although I have been approached by a different a couple of different companies who do that, but I'm, I'm a bit of a control freak to be honest, and I like to be able to do most of the things myself.
3: You know, when God you see <laughs> though, you, you can honestly you can imagine how it's just like it's a sinkhole for your time. Do you know what I
5: mean?
3: Mm. C- can you get your writing?
5: It's, it's done? enjoyable though. <laughs> I mean,
0: every angle. I find every angle of it. Um, I, I was writing um, solidly for for years and years. and But I always had an interest in the publishing side. And this has kind of opened my eyes to a lot of the different things and um, like copy editing different authors' works, and, you know, things like that. And I just find it really interesting. I find the
3: whole thing um, exhilarating, shall we say. So with, like you say, your, your anarchy books, am I right in thinking th- there's more to it? Because I, I noticed on your you've got like a soundtrack that goes with some of the books. Am I, am I picking this up right am I getting this totally wrong? You no, yeah, you, yeah you, you're <laughs> right you, when,
0: when I started to kind of come up with the idea of anarchy books and think, right, I'm, I'm going to publish other people's works as well, um, I thought, what can I do that's unique? What hasn't been done before? What's interesting or um, what different angles can I bring to it? And I was very good friends with a band, Called the Missing, um, and they offered to write a soundtrack to the serial killer's book. And I thought, oh, you know, that's a really interesting concept. So we sat down, and we had a big chat, and they went away and composed uh, ten original tracks. Um, some of them with lyrics, some as you know, kind of incidental background music. With the idea that if you were uh, really into the book, you could then download the album, and the album and book would complement one another. Um, and from that, I kind of I've commissioned a few other. Uh, bands to produce music. Um, we have Das Sombreros who did a soundtrack, a very kind of Vangelis, Blade Runner-type soundtrack for Jeffrey Thomas's novel, Monstrosity, which I released a couple of months back. Um, and then James Lovegrove. Uh, I found this incredibly brilliant. But James Lovegrove has recorded his own um, mini-album to go with the novel Gig, which we're releasing um, very shortly, in fact, in two or three weeks. Um, and we're going to release that album free, uh, mainly because James, that's kind of James's passion, um, and it's kind of like a reward to his readership. So yeah, it's all exciting. It's
3: it, it certainly does. You know what I mean? How? Um, this is what I would like to know as well, mind you. If I'm not, you know, if things take off, I mean, you know, we all want that. But would you be willing to kind of cut the cut the cord and maybe leave traditional publishing alone and just kind of? You know, focus on the ebook side and doing it yourself. No, no, I don't think
0: so. I mean, I've got very good relationships with my current publishers and editors, and um, it, it, I, I don't want to just be a one-man band. It's nice to have kind of different outlets and work with different people. And um, I'm always, I'll always be interested in the traditional publishing world, and I don't think, I think there's always a place for paperbacks as well. And I mean, me personally, I, I love paperbacks. I recognize the benefits of reading on a Kindle or an iPad. And uh, for example, I got stuffed at American Customs for having an overweight baggage, and, um, which was predominantly full of books that I'd bought when I was um, in Florida. So, you know, there's a kind of benefits for digital e readers there.
3: Um so that wouldn't well, yeah. that wouldn't happen with me there now because, like you see everything's on this Kindle, and yeah, yeah, you know the magic like you see Amazon now has got this this iCloud or this whatever it's called where and they're all there as well, so I can just, you can log on to any book and there they are anyway it's quite yeah. uh, so you log on to any computer and it's, they're there so tell us a little bit then andy about sim because is this is this out now is this your new one uh, yes,, I released
0: it just a few days ago um it's basically about a psychopathic cyborg who kills for the government. And when he's on a mission uh, to exterminate Rebs out in the dregs, then he comes across a little pussycat, which um, saves his life. And he takes the the cat home and and nurtures it and feeds it. Um, And... During that time, there's a kind of, the government and the scientists discover that there's um, a really nasty virus that is causing humanity to regress in an evolutionary sense. Um, and they order the extermination of every animal on the planet. So uh, it's called Justice D. Sim is the main character. And he doesn't take kindly to them trying to take away his cat. I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs>
3: So we we can I'll, I'll put a link on so people can go and and get that, and I'll put a link on to your your Anarchy site as well. What okay. I, I mean, I, I I missed. What what have you got coming up in Anarchy books from See other other writers in the future?
0: Uh, the next one that's due to be published is Gig by James Lovegrove, which is um, it's kind of about a rock rock musicians. I, I don't really want to give away too much because it's quite a unique story but it's, um, it's not necessarily the kind of normal fantasy or science fiction that James writes. i have also got Rain Dogs by Gary McMahon, which is a horror novel, which is absolutely brilliant. i have got um, New York Nights by Eric Brown, who's um, a very popular science fiction author. I've also commissioned some um, new novels by new authors who haven't been published before, because I thought, I remember what it was like you know being an unpublished writer and i wrote for over 10 years you know trying to get that elusive publishing deal so it's nice to be able to look at uh, unpublished writers and give them a little bit of a break even though i'm not you know technically a a big publisher or anything like that it's good to get some new writers out there it's a very exciting experience
3: well what well Listen, Andy, don't knock yourself down. You know, when you, you start now at the cusp of the wave there, you, and you kind of hear all this kind of the way this format's going, the digital, everything is kind of going that way. So honestly, yeah. good, good luck to you. You know, it's a great Thanks little adventure him. there. It's, it's amazing. Thank you so much for coming on Starship so far. My pleasure. It's been, uh, been, uh, exciting. Thank you. Yes. Well, we'll certainly get you back there and, you know, and tell everybody else about what other future endeavors you are into, sir. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks. There you go. Do pop over. Like I say, the link is on there, and there's a link onto Andy's Anarchy Books as well. Do pop over there and treat yourself to a little ebook. Why not? Next, we have Diane Stevenson's Poetry Planet. All to do with the Riesling Award. Diane.
6: Welcome to the third edition of Poetry Planet. I am your guide, Diane Severson. First, I apologize for the lateness of this episode. I've had a number of snafus regarding the show I had originally planned for July. Yes, I do realize it's September. I won't go into the grisly details. If you've read my blog or my live journal or follow me on Twitter, you might know them already. Suffice it to say that the Coming Home theme will occupy the fourth episode of Poetry Planet, and this show will concern itself with the Reisling Award. If you aren't familiar with the Reisling Award, it is the annual award given to two poems, a long one and a short one, published in 2010. This year, anyway. The poems are nominated and voted upon by the members of the Science Fiction Poetry Association, so it's akin to the Nebula Awards and the award is presented at ReaderCon in Maryland in July. The association publishes a beautiful little book containing all the nominated poems and provides each member with a copy as part of the membership's benefits. The top three poems in each category are announced, and so I would like to present them to you today. In the short poem category we have in third place, Dogstar Star Men by C.S.E. Cooney. In third place in the long poem category, Wreck-Diving the Starship by Robert Fraser. In second place we have Binary Creation Myth by Karen A. Romanco, and Dark Rains Here and There by Bruce Boston. And the winning poems for the 2011 Reisling Awards are in the short poem category, Peach-Creamed Honey by Amal El-Motar. And in the long poem category, The Sea King's Second Bride, by C.S.E. Cooney. So, we have bookends by C.S.E. Cooney. Congratulations to all the poets who had poems nominated for the award, but especially to the winning poets. Their poems will be printed, along with the Nebula Award-winning fiction, in the Nebula Awards Anthology from the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, Incorporated. On to the poetry, I say. Ah, but first a biography. C.S.E. Cooney lives in Chicago, but not for too much longer, revising a novel that, with diligence, a cleaver, and a new gown, will soon be ready for the ball. She has a short story upcoming in Steam Powered 2, an anthology due out at Torquay Press this September. Her story, Braiding the Ghosts, originally published in Clockwork Phoenix 3, can now be found in Rich Horton's Year's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy 2011. Her novella, The Big Baja, is available in ebook at Amazon.com and RolleryPress.com. Papaveria Press recently published her novella, Jack of the Hills, in the new Wonder Tales series, available in paperback from Papaveria.com and as an ebook at Amazon.com. Her poetry collection, How to Flirt in Fairyland and Other Wild Rhymes, illustrated by Rebecca Huston, is due out next year from Papaveria Press. Dog Star Men by C.S.E. Cooney All the men I might have loved have gone to Sirius. Sirius, the dog star, the dead star of summer, that cranberry bog, that red lamp district, promising scarlet women, scarlet waves of grain, a wine-stained sea. My lovely men are gone, leaving their braids behind them. They have left their braids, but they have taken the veins of their wrists, their bony faces and transparent fingers, their cigarettes, even the moist taunt of their throats. They have stolen away, forsaking everything to be happy on Sirius. Oh, Sirius, your houses are made of bougainvillea leaves, and your rain is pink and balsamic. There is blood soup to eat, and dragons, and everyone is a surgeon. Like Magellan before them, my men have circumnavigated mystery without me. Claire says, I think I wrote Dog Star Men under the influence of Neruda and Lorca, and the fact that none of the boys I liked in college liked me back. It also gave me the excuse to use words balsamic and bougainvillea in the same body, which made me inordinately happy. I never thought of submitting it anywhere because I always considered it a private sort of poem, and perhaps not very good, but Amal El-Motar telepathically whapped me and made me submit it to Cat Valenti at Apex Magazine. It must have been the fastest acceptance email I ever got in my life. Robert Fraser is an American writer of speculative poetry and fiction, as well as an Impressionist painter on Nantucket Island. He is a founding member of the Science Fiction Poetry Association and a past editor of their newsletter Starline. He has edited and published various SF poetry magazines and his fiction and poetry has appeared in various anthologies as well as in his own collections. As a historian, Frasier has written several articles on the evolution of the SF poetry movement, the most recent being a 2005 primer on the Reisling Awards for the poetry anthology The Alchemy of Stars, the Reisling Award Winners Showcase. His collaborative poem with Bruce Boston, Chronicles of the Mutant Rainforest, received first place in the 2006 Locus Magazine online poetry poll for the Best All-Time Science Fiction, Fantasy, or Horror Poem, and he received an Asimov's Reader's Poll Award in 1991. He has won the Reisling Award three times. The Science Fiction Poetry Association named Fraser a Grand Master in 2005. Wreck-Diving the Starship by Robert Fraser. Of those who arose from a frozen sleep and fought their way toward the ocean's surface, toward the future on this distant world, only the strongest persevered our ancestors were forged diamond hard tested by extreme chosen by fate yet prepared only in their hearts we owe them our reverence book of the original survivors twenty-two, seventeen. One, things that cannot happen should not happen yet there my daughter swims into the glow of my diving lamps i imagine temporal anomalies or some deep-water cold equation for Mira seems more palpable than the daily quanta of minutes, since I saw her life swept away so many summers ago, flung by the currents that often haunt the wreck of home-seeker. But how can this happen? Let me shift back to this morning, when I awoke in quarters breathing the familiar perfume of fear, of sea air and exhaust, and the sweat of restless salvage. Two. Sunrise, and six of us set a plan for reaching the less plundered decks by reverse tracing a path that the ship's passengers once made to freedom. First, I check my blends, then pony tanks, then the hollow maps. Dive prep is crucial when your jury rigged spacesuit can balloon suddenly and lift you to glorious embolism. Three. Two clicks out, two hundred meters down off these alien shores. Colonized by our unwilling ancestors, every one of us felt the vast presence of the ship. After two plateaus, the descent opened up to a rocky shelf. Her main section lay beside a precipice that dropped to nothing. I imagined an immense beast at rest in its foreign boneyard. The ship had lost its integrity and its raptor-like shape. Obscured by whiptail kelp, and a massive school of butterfins that poured from a hull breach like crime-scene tape. We swam into an inky dark, cut only by our blue visor lights, started along rope-marked passages we called the Trail of Hearts, illuminating skeletons embalmed in weedy suits and spaghettied cables and knife-edged bulkheads and docking stations sealed forever from space. All the realities of a shattered lifeboat, Plus the myths that have crusted about her and clouded reason. 4. 1. She is our true mother, a holiness calling us back to the frosty chambers where she'd suspended us for centuries. 2. She is merely ill fated and curses all who dive her. 3. A theorem I found unsettling but ultimately worthy Homeseeker is the embodiment of death transformed a malevolence still active, still cogitating, still in control. Nonetheless, we'd come here to exercise such sentiments and dive her for her last usable bits of hard and software to rend forever the clockwork of her immense arcology. 5. The trail zigzagged from the hull breach deep into the central axis and every step of it a dizzying plunge punctuated by brakes to reset our ropes. When a hard current slammed into me, sending me tumbling, I passed rapidly through alternating light and dark, and I felt as if the fabric of my being shifted, as if time rewound in the direction ahead. The hypnotic possibilities seemed suspect, riddled with as many ominous factors as bright ones. Another slashing current carried me past flooded atriums, then, fatally far into the ship, into her mysterious core, the holy grail of ship historians and wreck-salvers alike. 6. As I rebooted my lamps, the core stirred with riotous color all the sea-plants and small animals so like, yet unlike Earth's. Never before reached and thusly unknowable, Unsafe. The huge cryocenter seemed domed with real atmosphere. I closed my air valve, popped my helmet, and took the chance that could restore my chances at surviving. I found warm mists and a ceiling like daybreak, winking with clusters of organic phosphorescence. And there, treading in green shallows, was my dearest Mira, a memory reborn, only she was not the girl I lost not quite, but a complex form whose physiology appeared attenuated, whose very phylogeny seemed to have diverged on a track toward a lithe and compact simulacrum, arm-like appendages and the gilled head of a woman. I invoked her name, knowing I was senseless, disoriented, then its, her eyes fixed on mine, and spoke the single word, "'that could pierce my grief-hardened heart. "'Father. "'Every cell in my chest blackened, burned hot. "'I was truly lost, yet I found the miraculous, "'and perhaps a proof for the existence of angels. "'Postlude. "'It's been hours in this incubator, or perhaps a day. "'A thin microbial call films my suit,' and I brush it off and reassess my predicament in sharper relief. Chalk one up for the theory that home-seeker still hums, that some trickle charge allows the ship its brain, and chalk one also for the primacy of the mothership. However, scratch the theory that her luck is bad, for pure luck has left this all undisturbed for years. Question. Was it my almost Mira? or the ship itself that sent me reeling and shipwrecked me here, just another lost traveler finally seeking home. Wreck-Diving the Starship first appeared in Dreams and Nightmares, 87. Bob Fraser says, Wreck-Diving the Starship came out of two directions. One, a fascination with the dangerous diving in nearby waters, nearby being Nantucket, especially the Andrea Doria, which, by the way, claimed a new victim recently. I'm not a diver, however. Two, a novella I'm working on which approaches the concept of wreck-diving a starship from a much different angle. The poem was a spin-off that allowed me to get into the idea, explore below deck, kick up some sediment, and get out before nitrogen narcosis set in. Karen A. Romanco has seen over 100 of her poems and short stories published in venues such as Strange Horizons, Aberrant Dreams, Idiomancer, and Lone Star Stories. When she switches literary hats, she edits and publishes speculative fiction and poetry anthologies under the Raven Electric Inc. imprint, such as Retrospect, Tales of Fantasy and Nostalgia, from 2010, and JacoSpec, Tales of Halloween and Fantasy, coming September 2011. Binary Creation Myth by Karen A. Romanko On the null day, God created zero. On the first day, zero created not zero and called it one. On the second day, one and zero lay together to create code. On the third day, code wrote itself to create process. On the fourth day, process ran itself and created result. On the fifth day, result examined itself and created question. On the sixth day, question asked itself and created hypothesis. On the seventh day, hypothesis accepted itself and created God. Karen says this about the poem. I became familiar with creation myths in college where I had a minor in the study of religion. I've never written a computer program, but my husband is a director of a curriculum software project, so we have a techie household. It was perhaps inevitable, then, that the idea of a binary creation myth would spring to mind and ultimately find realization in this poem. Bruce Boston should be a familiar name among regular listeners of Poetry Planet and Starship Sofa. He has received more major awards for speculative poetry than any other author, a record seven Reisling Awards, a record six Asimov's Reader's Awards, and four Bram Stoker Awards for his poetry collections Pitch Blend, 2003, Shades Fantastic, 2006, The Nightmare Collection, 2008, and Dark Matters, 2010, and a Pushcart Prize for fiction. He was named the Science Fiction Poetry Association's first Grand Master in 1999, Boston has published twenty-six books of poetry, three novels, two novelettes, and twelve story collections, and thirty-two poetry collections. Plus, he coined the word cybertext. Dark Rains, Here and There, by Bruce Boston 1. When she was a girl in Myanmar, the dark rains fell suddenly in great sheets of water and sound in the heated afternoons. Thunder would rattle the tin roof, and the kitchen would often flood. When the dark rains fell on Myanmar, she lived in poverty beneath the tyranny of a state beyond redemption. When the dark rains fell on Myanmar, the sky gave up its color. Shadows would disappear, for there would be one great shadow covering everything. 2. When she was a woman in San Francisco, the dark rains would fall slowly and steadily for days at a time, turning the pastel houses gray beneath an even grayer sky. When the dark rains fell on San Francisco, the tires of passing cars hissed endlessly on the wet pavements. When the dark rains fell on San Francisco, she lived with passion and belief, and drug-fueled flights to worlds unfathomed. 3. When she was a wanderer in space, the dark rains fell many ways on many different worlds. When the dark rains fell in the labyrinth of canyons that laced the southern hemisphere of Epsilon Eridani 9, they danced this way and that in constantly shifting whirlpools of wind. When the dark rains fell in the light gravity of Fomalout's only habitable moon, it was in large, limpid drops clinging to the cilia and limbs of overarching trees. When the dark rains fell on many different worlds, here and there, she learned to live with love, bright as rockets flare, and loss, deep as a singularity. 4. When she was a señora in the high Mexico desert, in the steady days of her peace and resolution, she would stand at the screen door just before dusk. She would listen to the insects ticking against the dusty metal cross hatch and watched the light from her low red sun encroaching on the deep shade of the porch. When the sky remained cloudless on the high desert, when life seemed dry and spare as the land around her, she found herself watching for one more dark rain she could walk in. Two comments Bruce had regarding the poem. It's particularly gratifying to have this poem placed second for the Reisling Award because no publication I sent this to wanted to publish it. It received rejection after rejection, and to get it into print, I had to include it as an original in my collection Dark Matters. guess those editors who rejected the poem didn't really know the taste of genre poetry readers. More specifically addressing the content of the poem... I've always found day after day of unchanging cloudless skies and sunshine more depressing than day after day of constantly changing cloudy and stormy skies accompanied by rain. In fact, I find the latter invigorating rather than depressing. That difference becomes the metaphorical setting for dark rains here and there, which suggests that a life filled with challenges, with conflicts and changes, can prove more satisfying than one that is peacefully resolved and constant." Amal El-Motar is presently pursuing a Ph.D. in English literature at the Cornwall campus of the University of Exeter. She is the author of The Honey Month, Papaveria Press, 2010, and has twice been awarded the Reisling Award for Best Short Poem. Her short story, The Green Book, was nominated for the Nebula Award, and her work has recently appeared in the Thackeray T. Lambshead Cabinet of Curiosities, Welcome to Border Town, Stone Telling, Mythic Delirium, Strange Horizons, Apex, and Sybil's Garage. She co-edits Goblin Fruit, an online quarterly dedicated to fantastical poetry with Jessica P. Wick and keeps a blog somewhat tidy at LiveJournal. Peach-Creamed Honey by Amal L. Motar They say she likes to suck peaches, not eat them, Suck them, tilt her head back, and let the juice drip sticky down her chin before licking, sucking, swallowing the sunshine of it down. They say she likes to tease her fruit, bite ripe summer flesh just to get that drip going down, down, sweets her elbow with the slip of it, wears it like perfume, I say, she's got a ways to go yet, that girl. Just a blossom yet herself, still bashful round the bees. I say, no way a girl can tease like that who's been bit into once or twice. So I come round with just a little bit of honey, just a little, little lick, just enough to catch her eye. Creamed peach honey, just the thing to bring her by. And I know she'll let me tell her how the peaches lost their way, how they fell out of a wagon on a sweaty summer's day, how the buzz got all around that there was sugar to be had, and the bees came singing and the bees came glad. They sucked, she'll blush. I'll tell her they sucked that fruit right dry till it all got tangled up in the heady, humming hive. They made it into honey, and they fed it to their queen. And she shivered with the sweet, and she licked the platter clean. And she dreamed of sunny meadows, and she dreamed of soft ice cream. I'll see her lick her lips, and I'll see her bite a frown, and I'll see how she'll hesitate, look from me up to the town, and back, and she'll swallow, and she'll say, Can I try? And I'll offer like a gentleman won't even hold her eye. Because she'll have to close them, see, she'll have to moan a bit. And it's when she isn't looking, when she's sighing, fit to cry, that I'll lick the loving from her, that I'll taste the peaches on her, that I'll drink the honey from her, suck the sweet of her surprise. Amal says of her poem, I rather unabashedly love this poem. Besides the fact that Danielle suture pronounced it her favorite piece of the collection, The Honey Month, it's wonderful fun to perform, whether in front of shocked first-year undergraduates, parents and their wide-eyed friends, or spoken word aficionados kind enough to let a page poet into their midst. I mean, it's about peaches, and the sucking and licking thereof. How can one go wrong? It just tumbled out, line by line. It tugged me along, in a way that was halting at first, as I tried to figure out what exactly was happening with it, and then in a lilting rush as I figured it out. I understood that the storytelling part of the seduction needed its own rhythm, and that once that part was done, it would have significantly changed the rhythm of the first part of the narration, and I let it go where it would after that. It's important to me for another reason. At the time I wrote it, I was heartily sick of being cast in the role of perpetual ingenue in other people's narratives, of being told I was innocent, or cute, or sweet, or a tease. There is something of a ritual in the poem being the way it is, a courting of that self others see, by a self that people don't. The fact that the latter is what shows up in performance is, I think, pretty straightforward. THE SEA KING'S SECOND BRIDE By C.S.E. Cooney March is blowing wet and snowy when I stumble upon the sea king. He is washed up from the water, all his nakedness like heaven, with his hair so lank and heavy green and black as sodden seaweed, with his harp of kelp and pearl cracked to pieces on his knee. "'What ails you, my sea-king?' I ask this creature, laughing. "'I love him, how I love him, immediate and sudden, the way you love a rainstorm, the Milky Way, a leopard, that reckless love of wild things after years pent in a city. "'My bride Agneta left me.' says the sea-king under the thunder, like the salt and surf and thunder. She has left our seven children, and our castle made of coral. She has gone back to her father, to his bright and airy kingdom, has maybe found a lover, some brawny, freckled farmer. She left me for another. But tell me, pretty sea-thing, I teased the lonely sea-king, what motivates this horror? Perhaps because you beat her, or threatened sharks would eat her, or treated her with seven sons, got upon her one by one, and not a year between them? That might just be a reason, if reason's what you're after. It's a basis to be bitter. And no wonder, poor Agneta! His majesty grows maudlin, how he glances, how he glistens, so cunning, yet so awkward, on these sands that bloat and bleach him. In this shape akin to man shape, gills agape and fins a quiver, how the sea king's skin is silver like lightning under water. Agneta was my daybreak, mourns the sea king on the seashore. I never knew a morning till the morning that I met her, when I stole her from her father, leaving only dew behind us. I cried to her, Come under, come beneath, and be my consort. She said she feared the drowning, but I covered her in lilies, a crown of purest lilies, white as beeswax, soft as velvet. I combed her hair with seashells and fed her for my fingers, her slightest wish I granted with the mightiest of magic. I played this harp of pearl, and it swept away her memory. She didn't mind forgetting. I thought it made her happy. The sea king's eyes are dark and wide, like otters slick with oil spill. I poke his spiny rib cage and the silver fish that dance there. He jumps. Perhaps it tickled. At least he can be tickled. Cheer up, my doughty sea king, I shout in manner bracing. For I sicken of this city, of its traffic lights and taxes, of the emails and the faxes, and the work and wage and worry. So tell you what, my darling. You take me to your kingdom, and I'll romp with all your children, spin them stories by the daylight, sing them lullabies at night-time, and when they're sound and sleeping I will creep into your bower, to your bed of bright anemone, where I'll comb your hair with seashells, pour my palms in perfumed oil. By and by I'll take you deeper than ever sea-king ventured. We will scour off what's rotting." All these thoughts of sweet Agneta. Do you think we have a bargain? The sea-king does not answer, but he shrugs his flashing shoulders, and I take this for a yes. It wasn't like a marriage, no broom or blood or bonfire, but he made a few adjustments for my sub-aquatic breathing, taught his certain way of speaking like a whale when it's singing— and a kind of seeing clearly through the brine and murk and current. And when I see him clearly, see my sea-king under water. He isn't much to look at until he's under water. Then matter do I love him, love his glimmer in the gloaming, like a tooth or moon or treasure that you wish might be a knife-blade so to wed it with your flesh. Sure enough his children love me, seven princes crowned in lilies, We are happy in our frolics, and they giggle at my ragging, at my bad jokes and my chit-chat, and the way I tease their father. At breakfast we are raucous, and at dinner most uncouth, at supper always laughing, well, the kids and I are laughing, but the sea-king sits in silence and recalls his wife Agneta. She heard the church bells ringing, And she left me, never caring For my soreness or despairing, Forsaking all her children, forgetting her beloved. His wet blanket on our banquets Somewhat dampens the hilarity, Somewhat chisels at my charity, And the boys slink off for climates more conducive to their gaiety, And I tell their father gently, With what kindness I can muster, That our memories are fragile that we cannot help forgetting, and that precious, poor Agneta—please recall, my dearest deep one—had been practically lobotomized by all his fell enchantments, so please strive for some compassion. "'Agneta!' cries the sea-king. "'Agneta! And Agneta!' And even though I love him, there are times I'd trade his kingdom—yes, his castle made of coral, and his princes crowned in lilies—for a single good harpoon. By late April I am brooding, and by May I'm truly scheming, and in June I hatch a plan half-conceived in idle dreaming. Oh, the bells! The church-bells ringing! I groan unto my seeking rending small strategic punctures in my robes of pearl and seaweed. The steeple-bells that scream matins, the sound of papa weeping. In walking or in sleeping, every night and noon I hear them, as if I stood just near them. Oh, the bells, the bell I weaken at their tintinnabulations Won't you let me, dearest sea-king, break to surface and behold them? An hour, just an hour, but one hour do I beg you. Well, the sea-king doesn't like that, does not like that, not at all. He is roused to indignation, which in turn ignites to fury. He is bright as any blizzard, he is cold and white and wondrous, and his bare feet stomp a tidal wave that would have swamped Atlantis, if Atlantis weren't already swamped from when Agnata left him. And he blusters and he thunders and he coaxes and he wheedles. Don't I like his coral castle with its turrets neat as needles and its grottos and its bowers and its gardens and its mazes? Don't I love to love his children? Am I not content to stay here like the lampreys and the stingrays and the sharks who come to play here? How he sulks and how he scowls, "'How he pleads and how he howls! "'But the bells, the bells,' I mutter, "'growing slack and wan and fainter, "'till he grants me what I ask for. "'Just one hour, mind, one hour! "'And he swims me grimly, "'and he doesn't see I'm smiling. "'My father's at St. Agnes, "'where he's often found on Sundays, "'with his choir and his piano, "'and the band that plays on Sundays.' And I sit with the sopranos, and I join in at the descant, and my father smiles a little, even winks a droll good-morning. He is busy with conducting, and he's maybe even praying. Thus I stay the hour allotted me, through Eucharist and homily, but all in all I'd rather be, fathoms down beneath the sea, with magic and with mystery, my seven heathen darlings and a very cranky sea-king." When the bells have ceased to ring, I kiss my father swiftly. He tells me that he's missed me. I let him know I'm happy, even lacking crowns of lilies, even sopping wet and smelly. I say I'm truly happy. It's all he ever wanted. When he sees me rushing toward him, arms outflung and smile kindled, the sea-king looks astonished, quite bewildered and bedazzled, like he's never seen my likeness. "'Your hair is bright as goldfish, your face is sweet as morning. "'Taking up his silver hand, I vow as how I've missed him, "'missed his scales and his spackles and his webbed and clammy skin. "'How choking is this incense, how blinding are the candles, "'after months spent in the darkness of your castle made of coral. "'But it's nice to see my father. "'Let's go visit him this autumn. "'We can introduce the children.' The sea-king's rapid smile is a dreadful shock of pleasure, like a little boy's first mischief, like a damsel's foremost coyness, like a man who's given manna when he begged for stale bread. He cocks his head and murmurs through the tousles and the tangles, I never brought you lilies. My goblet runneth over, so I scold him rather sternly. There's time enough for trinkets, time immortal, time forever. Time for starfish in my bathtub, time for flowers and a foot-rub, time for tokens meant for me alone and not some ghostly maiden. Be she ever pure and pious, be she pretty as a lily. For you see, my doughty sea-king, I am from a doting family, and I know that you've been lonely, and I know I'm no Agneta, but I'm warm and I'm willing. I can offer what I offer, but it will not come to begging.' Do you want me for your lover, or pine for one who left you?" The sea-king pauses, pondering. I almost punch his face in. Then he smiles like a dolphin, like a green wave clean and leaping, and he solemnly incants. Come down with me, come under, come beneath and be my consort. I will tell you all my secrets. I will let you take me deeper, where no sea-king dared to venture where Agneta never wandered, you will whisper your desires, and together we'll uncover all the fire in the ocean. Then I give my awkward sea-king this small thing that I've been saving for a moment like this moment, when both he and I are ready, first a kiss and then a promise, then a topple and a tumble. It is frantic, it is frenzied, and we finish in a fever." Come unclasped in joyous moisture and he leads me to the river where we hear the children singing the end the sea king's second bride first appeared in goblin fruit spring 2010 the sea king's second bride has roots that go back to a high school obsession for sea kings "'Serial Dreams of the Same,' and S. J. Tucker's song Neptune. "'It's also the fault of writer Nicole Cornhurst-Dace, "'who, upon learning of my obsession, "'directed me to John Bower's painting, Agneta and the Sea King. "'I rapidly fell in love with it, "'and Nicole, along with Goblin Fruit editors and poets, "'Amal El-Motar and Jessica P. Wick, "'bought me the print for my twenty-eighth birthday.' By this time I was burning to read the original story of the same name, which Bauer had illustrated in the early twentieth century. The moment my book of Swedish folk tales arrived, I thumped myself down to read Agneta and the Sea King. It was late evening, I swallowed the whole thing in a sitting. Then, burning with indignation over the Sea King's stupid behaviour, Agneta's milkiness, and stolen bride stories in general, I wrote the first draft of The Sea King's Second Bride on a magnetic memo pad. It's my favorite performance piece, too. I often recite it to myself while walking home from the train station. And there you have it, the Riceling Award winners and second- and third-place poems for 2010. In Science Fiction Poetry News, the Stoker Awards were presented in June, But sadly, most people pay more attention to the Fiction Awards, so I'd like to point out that Bruce Boston has won the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in a Poetry Collection for his collection Dark Matters, published by Bad Moon Books. This is his fourth Stoker Award. Congratulations, Bruce! The Science Fiction Poetry Association online journal of speculative poetry, entitled Eye to the Telescope, has gone live with their second issue. Yes, I missed the boat on the first. This issue concentrates on poetry from New Zealand and Australia and is well worth reading. Our own Grant Stone has a poem within. The first issue of Eye to the Telescope is available in the archives and contains wonderful essays by Deborah Cologi and Samantha Henderson in praise of short and long poetry, respectively, and includes loads of wonderful poems. This journal promises to become a treasure trove for poetry enthusiasts. Check it out! If you live in or near Worcester in England, consider attending or contributing to 42, the Gothic Horror, Sci-Fi, and Fantasy Open Mic Night. The next one takes place on September 28, 2011. Calling all writers, poets, musicians, performance artists, actors, and comedians. If you have an interest in these areas, they want you to get involved. They are always on the lookout for new contributors, so please get in touch. You can RSVP on their Facebook pages, look for the links in the show notes. A new website dedicated to reviewing speculative poetry has gone live. It's called Versification, so check it out and read up on where you can find great SF poetry. You've heard me mention where the poems in Poetry Planet have been published previously. You've noticed that they come from a variety of sources. Some have been published in the author's collections, but most you can find in various magazines, and many of those are available online. There are several print magazines that deal exclusively with science fiction poetry in the broader sense, and I'd like to draw your attention to some of them. As always, if there is a web presence for them, you can find the links in the show notes on the Starship Sofa website. David Kapaska-Merkel is the editor of Dreams and Nightmares, which has been in production since 1986. Issue number 89, with poetry by Anne K. Schwader, Bruce Boston, Andy Boyan, Gio Clark, and Kendall Evans, among others, is available now. He is also accepting submissions for issue number 91. Then there's Illumin, which in the latest issue, number 14, features the poetry of Mike Allen and an article by Anne K. Schwader about how the poetry of Emily Dickinson relates to science fiction poetry. Mythic Delirium number 24, edited by Mike Allen, is available now and includes poetry by Gary Avery, Joshua Gage, Theodora Goss, F.J. Bergman, Lynn C.A. Gardner, and many others. You can read quite a few featured poems from various back issues on the website. A couple of articles you may find interesting, simply because I did, are Science Fiction Poetry Versus Mainstream Poetry by Elizabeth Barrett, found online at Grasping for the Wind, the Idea of the Real, Notes on the History of Speculative Poetry, by Mark Rich, and Speculative Poetry, a Symposium, by Mike Allen, Alan De Niro, Theodore Goss, and Matthew Cheney, both at Strange Horizons. If you like your poetry in very small doses, head over to InkScrawl, an online poetry zine dedicated to short poetry of ten lines or less. Well, that will do it for this particular Poetry Planet. I hope that I'll be able to get another Poetry Planet out to you before a month has gone by. We'll see about that. Um But thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed the Reisling Award poems. This is me signing out. Till the next visit to Poetry Planet.
3: And There you go. Like I say, all them links on the front of the website. Do pop over there and say hello. It would be nice to, to see you. Pop over the forums. If I, Just out of curiosity, if you want, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and G, Google. If you need to get in touch, Starships over at gmail.com. Until next week, just like I say, good night from me. Ooh.
1: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Storsion Sofa. Appetition procedure initiated. Shovel set for watch. Airlock will be opened in 3, two, one.